You are now rocking with a jazz hammer. Mister, he said with a gravelly cough, I am the jazz hammer. I speak for the rock. I speak for the rocks, for the rocks have no tongues. And I am asking you, sir, at the top of my lungs. He was very upset as he shouted and gawked. What is that thing you've bolted into my granitic outcrop? Welcome back to the Rock Behind the Climb podcast. I am your host, Quinn, the Jazz Hammer, Todzo. This episode, we are headed to the high desert in Southern California to one of the best winter climbing destinations in the land. I'm speaking, of course, about Joshua Tree National Park, which features crazy-looking rock formations that, to me, seem like is the work of Sisyphus, just because it looks like a bunch of boulders stacked into piles for some reason. Not to be discounted is the vast desert landscape and the hundreds of Seussian-looking Joshua trees that define the park. I wasn't able to confirm or deny whether or not Dr. Seuss was actually inspired by Joshua trees when he drew his truffula trees for the Lorax, but it was the first thing that I thought of when I went to Joshua Tree for the first time. Also, from what I've learned about the climbing culture there, it wouldn't surprise me if there was some small humanoid who warned people against bolting the rock. Along with its unique rock formations and trees, Joshua Tree also has a pretty unique style of climbing that lends to a vibrant climbing culture. The rock formations, climbing, and culture are all interconnected and lend well to one another. The rock formations govern the style of climbing, which in turn influences the culture, which works to maintain the formations and the way of climbing the pioneers discovered them. On this episode, I'm honored to have spoken with, and I recorded conversations with, writer and fellow podcaster Luke Mihal and climbing guide Roddy McCauley, who have extensive experience in the rock climbing world and have spent long periods of time in Joshua Tree. Luke Mihal is well known throughout the climbing community for being the publisher of the climbing zine, as well as for writing a number of books documenting his adventures as a dirtbag climber. His most recent endeavor, and reason I got to know of him, was through his new podcast, The Dirtbag State of Mind, which also documents his climbing adventures. I was fortunate enough to spend an hour talking to him about Joshua Tree and just generally life as a climber. In this episode, I will share some bits of that conversation with the full hour-long conversation coming out later. Roddy McCauley is a bona fide climbing guide who has been guiding in Joshua Tree since 2009. He runs his own guiding service and spends winters in Joshua Tree and the rest of the time climbing elsewhere. He basically knows all there is to know about climbing in Joshua Tree and is one of the big reasons my family and I got so into rock climbing. I first met Roddy in December 2018 when, after having fun at the local gym and getting hyped after watching the documentary Free Solo, my family decided to try out climbing outdoors. 
we had heard that Joshua Tree National Park was a hotspot destination for climbing. So we hired a guide since we didn't know what the heck we were doing and traveled down to Southern California with the whole family over the holidays of 2018. Roddy was our guide that winter, who is a Yale grad turned climbing guide who seems to have a PhD in all things rock climbing. I was impressed as he would effortlessly rig up a bunch of top ropes and lead multi-pitch trad routes for us to follow and climb and talk our ear off about it, Joshua Tree and rock climbing and the outdoors all while doing it. Sadly, I can't attribute my relatively newfound interest and love for climbing to Roddy. The reality is that my influence for climbing has come from a lot of different places. However, going to Joshua Tree and climbing with Roddy gave me a real sense of what real rock climbing was and the possibilities in it. I felt what it was like to climb real routes on real rock and the exhilaration that comes with maneuvering your way up a multi-pitch route. There was also the kinds of views and places I experienced on the side of a rock face that otherwise wouldn't be possible in the horizontal world. Also, since going on that first trip during the winter of 2018, we have gone as a family each subsequent winter and climbed with Roddy each time, making it sort of a tradition. So, with all of that being said, I still feel like I'm pretty green when it comes to the technical side of rock climbing, since I've only relatively recently begun rigging climbs and really exploring outdoor climbing outside of bouldering. With a location as well-regarded and classic as Joshua Tree, I found it best to bring a little backup. So on this episode, I invited both writer Luke Mihal and climbing guide Roddy McCauley to comment on the different aspects of Joshua Tree, and I will fill in with the geologic context of what makes the climbing at J-Tree the way it is. So, to start off, I asked both Luke and Roddy to describe the wacky landscape of Joshua Tree that I alluded to earlier. Here's Roddy. I was wondering if you could describe just the landscape of Joshua Tree in your own words. Ooh, I'd be delighted. It is a unique landscape. The rock formations stick out of a flat desert plain surrounded by low mountains that rise to 5,000 feet. The central plain around Hidden Valley Campground, which is what climbers think of when you say Joshua Tree, the park itself is actually three quarters of a million acres. It's bigger than the state of Rhode Island. It goes for quite a distance in every direction, but the, the plateau of Lost Horse Valley and Hidden Valley Campground in the central area where we do most of our climbing is these clumps of rock sticking out of a flat sort of creosote desert plain with Joshua Tree forests. It's a stark landscape. It looks coolest at morning and, and evening times when the sun is low and things kind of pop into relief. And when the sun is setting and the shadow fills the valley, it really looks like the rock formations are islands in a shallow sea. That's what I think of most when I'm on a rock formation looking out over this landscape is, wow, it's, it's like undersea coral reefs, but the ocean is gone. Even though I know in fact that the, the rocks were formed underground and, and exposed by erosion and, and uplift, not to steal too much of your thunder, Quinn, um, it kind of looks like a shallow sea that, that was drained and left this, this crazy landscape. So, a few things here. First of all, I had to look it up too, but what he means by a creosote desert plain is a desert that contains a lot of desert plants and greenery. Just thought I'd dispel everyone's first thought from his response. Cool word, though. 
I'm definitely going to integrate it into my extensive vernacular. Second, he mentioned how big Joshua Tree National Park is, bigger than the state of Rhode Island. The protected area actually crosses into two different deserts, even. The lower elevation Colorado Desert to the east and the higher elevation Mojave Desert in the west. But, as Roddy said, the climbing is pretty concentrated in a relatively small area, which is in the western part of the park on the Mojave side, among the strange-looking islands of piled-up rocks. I will talk about these rock pile islands in a second, but let's hear from Luke about what he thinks of the landscape. Yeah, so my, um, I would say, home area of when I really first started climbing and dirtbagging was called Hartman Rocks near Gunnison, Colorado. Um, And it's insanely similar to Joshua Tree. It's more of a mountain bike um, place. It's really known for, well known for its mountain biking. Um, but I would live there for months on end in a tent. Um, and so Joshua tree felt like Hartman's, um, but with better rock, you know, better cracks and just insanely bigger. And also than in Southern California. Um, but right, right away when I think of Joshua tree, I just think of probably the most accessible climbing in the United States, um, as far as location and, you know, there's five, two cracks, you know, there aren't, there aren't many places that have a lot of five, two cracks that you can solo. After talking with him about that, I looked up Hartman rocks, Colorado, and yeah, the rock outcrops do look pretty similar to those in J tree. However, the surrounding scenery is quite different. Hartman rocks does not seem to feature a flat creosote desert landscape which is seen in Joshua Tree. So I'm guessing that the terrain in Hartman does not lend as well to the accessibility ease in J-Tree that Luke's described. And yeah, the accessibility factor is huge in Joshua Tree. It is generally really easy to hike to the base of any climb, which for so many Joshua Tree climbs is not more than a 5-10 to minute easy walk from the parking lot, road, or campground. What he said here contributes well to the climbing culture in Joshua Tree, but I'll get to that a little later in the episode. The question on everyone's minds, though, is how did all of these islands of seemingly piled up boulders get formed? Well, my dad's theory is that they're all a bunch of piles of fossilized dinosaur poop. However, along with my dad's well-researched theory, there's Also, a geologic explanation for it that ties in well to the climbing style. So, the rock at Joshua Tree is a type of granite formed in a very similar way to that of the Sierra Nevada in Northern California, which is a result of the subduction of the Farallon tectonic plate below the North American plate. I go into detail about this subduction in my first episode on the Sierra Nevada. But essentially, this subducting plate caused magma to boil up from the Earth's mantle into the crust. This magma did not, however, make it into the Earth's surface and cool deep underneath the surface to create the so-called Monzo granite, which allowed for big mineral crystals to form that can be seen by the naked eye. 
The Monzo part of the Monzo granite means that it's a granitic rock with a high ratio of high light-colored silica-based minerals to dark-colored iron and magnesium-based minerals. This granite formed a little over 100 million years ago, about the same time as the Sierra Nevada. As the rock began to cool, parallel yet orthogonal jointing was formed in the rock. This means that there are a bunch of cracks in the rock that form in a sort of cross-hatched pattern angled at 90 degrees to one another. The jury is still out on why exactly the cracks form parallel to one another, but it has to do with the way that the rock mass as a whole cools, creating repeating tension cracks in the rock. What is so cool about Joshua Tree is that you can very clearly see the parallel jointing in the rock basically everywhere and across multiple outcrops. In my photos, you can see the parallel jointing in the way the boulders seem to be stacked and recognize that the way the rocks are stacked form this distinct pattern. In this episode, I'm not going to go any further into the theories on how the parallel cracks were originally created. Again, it has to do with how the rock cooled underground. Instead, I'll go into how these cracks were exacerbated, which leads well into how we get the piles of ancient dinosaur poop. <laughs> if you're interested in more details about rock jointing, I talk about it a lot in episode 5, the Sierra Nevada Part 2. The area that is now Joshua Tree National Park has gone through many environmental changes over the last 100 million years. So, long ago, the environment was actually quite lush and experienced a lot of rainfall. This consistent rainfall percolated down through the overlying soil and into the underlying granite that had since cooled and created the parallel joints. Well, when the rainwater made it to the rock, it started to seep into these cracks, making them wider just by the nature of flowing through. More importantly, though, there's a chemical reaction that takes place when rainwater interacts with granitic rock, like the rock in Joshua Tree, which is the underlying reason for all the crazy-looking rock pile formations and for the unique style of climbing that goes with it. So, I apologize to anyone who hates chemistry, but I'm going to dive into this a little bit. So in general, rain usually becomes somewhat acidic when it falls through the atmosphere because it reacts with carbon dioxide to form carbonic acid, and then it subsequently produces hydrogen ions in this water solution. Now, this is usually not that big of a deal because there isn't enough carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to really make a lot of carbonic acid, so the rainwater wouldn't be too acidic. However, when this slightly acidic rainwater starts to make its way into the soil, which is typically a lot more carbon dioxide rich than air, the slightly acidic rainwater becomes more acidic with the interaction of more carbon dioxide in the soil. After the acidic rainwater passes through the atmosphere and the soil, it finally interacts with the underlying granite. Now, when this acidic rainwater 
reaches the intact granite, there is another chemical reaction that happens with some of the minerals in the rock and the acidic rainwater. This reaction is called hydrolysis and happens when the acidic rainwater reacts with the second most common mineral in the granite next to quartz called feldspar. Feldspars are minerals that are unstable based on their crystal lattice structure and can easily be broken down by the hydrogen ions that are produced from the carbon dioxide water solution. Anyway, these hydrogen ions break up the feldspar mineral into the clay mineral called kaolinite, which has a more stable crystalline structure. This clay mineral, however, will no longer be bound to the rock as it once was as a feldspar, and will eventually be washed away leaving nothing where the feldspar used to be. Sorry if that was confusing or too much chemistry. You know, it's funny, I remember being at a party during college which, with a bunch of material science majors where everyone was going around talking about their favorite crystal lattice structures. And I remember thinking to myself that even though I was going to be an engineer, like, I can never stand to be this nerdy. Fast forward to me doing research for this episode and having an excited discussion with my roommate about the stability of crystal lattices of different rock-forming minerals based on their quenching temperature. Moral of the story is, is that sometimes you just gotta embrace your inner lattice structure. I'm willing to bet that most of you are ready to move on, but for those of you still wondering why it is that a feldspar breaks down so easily compared to quartz, I'll talk a little bit more about it at the end of the episode. Anyway, moving on. So to recap real quick, we have granite that formed underground with natural parallel joints that sliced the granite up into blocks. This would not be very noticeable if it weren't for the water trickling down over time into the cracks, opening them up wider physically, as well as chemically breaking down the granite feldspar by feldspar. Over time, as more feldspar continues to get converted to clay, the once blocky looking granite starts to become more rounded, which is why the process is sometimes called spheroidal weathering. You could think of it like holding an ice cube underneath water, causing its edges to round. Just like the ice cube, in the case of granite, the water first penetrates and accumulates along the edges and corners since that's where the joints are, thus rounding these joints into egg-shaped boulders. So after water had percolated down and chemically decomposed the granite, so to speak, into a jumble of boulders, the environment above started to slowly change into a more arid desert. <clears throat> this meant that if it was going to rain, it could easily be a flash flood, carrying away a lot of the overlying sediment and exposing the various outcropping jumbles of granite boulders that are described as looking like islands among an ocean. The level of chemical weathering can definitely depend for some of the outcrops. The more heavily weathered look like a giant pile of rounded boulders, while the less weathered outcrops 
more likely will look like one piece of a rounded granite sticking out of the flat ground. Most of the climbing areas, at least for the roped climbs, are in locations that have relatively less weathered rock. What makes the landscape interesting as well, though, is how prominent these outcrops seem when presented in the flat desert surrounding. Geologists call this an Inselberg and Pendiment landscape to describe the rock islands and desert sea, respectively. Sadly, there isn't a consensus on how the Pendiment, or flat desert, is formed, so I'll just kind of leave it at that. Now, let's break down, pun intended, how the hydrolysis of the feldspar in the granite and the subsequent spheroidal weathering affect the rock in ways that control the climbing. So, spoiler alert, Joshua Tree is known for primarily two kinds of rock climbing styles, slab climbing and crack climbing. Slab climbing, for those who don't know, consists of climbing up a less than vertical rock face, using not much more than the friction of the rock and maybe the tiniest of holds to work your way up. For slab climbing to work, you really need a situation with very good rock friction, which has to do with how bumpy and uneven the surface is. When the feldspar minerals get chemically changed and then removed from the mineral matrix of the granite, it makes the rock much more uneven, therefore giving you better friction on the rock. Also, on a larger scale, since the rock is undergoing a spheroidal weathering pattern, it tends to round off as you go up, making so many of the routes are also subvertical, which makes them a lot more doable when there aren't a lot of things to really grab onto. Crack climbing is climbing up a vertical or diagonal crack that extends for a majority of the climbing route, where the climber has to use a series of hand and foot jams in the crack to climb up it. The crack climbing is prominent because of the jointing that I talked about earlier getting exacerbated due to the water flowing through over time and eating away at the feldspar minerals in the vicinity of the cracks. The level of weathering dictates the width of the crack as well as the overall steepness of the climb. In Luke Mihal's words, Joshua Tree is one of the few places where you can find an easy 5-2 rated climb just because of the sheer number of cracks and subvertical rock faces in J-Tree. In my photo album, I feature a picture from the Indian Cove area on the crag known as the Short Wall. In the photo, featured from left to right, there's a 5.8 rated chimney crack next to a 5.11b vertical hand crack next to a 5.10b diagonal hand crack next to a 5.11c slab climb next to a 5.4 crack next to a 5.6 slab. <laughs> All of these are distinct lines from one another in the same vicinity, and it just goes to show the range of difficulties and volume of crack and slab climbs, because this is just one tiny speck on the map of Joshua Tree climbing. In general, the hydrolysis and spheroidal weathering affects the rock in ways that serve climbing in the creation of these crack and slab climbs. But... 
There are occasionally times that you run into actual holds, or even jugs. These are the result of unconformities on the rock where there is less or more feldspar content relative to the rock around it. In many cases, this causes the rock to actually start weathering beneath the surface, creating a kind of onion-style weathering in layers. While this can create some cool-looking holds, there's a possibility that they are very fragile, and I noticed that it was tough to trust many of the juggy or good-looking holds, sadly. In my photos, I show what this looks like on the east side of Echo Rock. In the photo, my brother is climbing the 511A rated Big Mo. There are a ton of nice pockets and jugs on this climb that make for a really fun climb. While both of my brothers made fairly quick work of it, the climb eluded me. But it was so much fun that I'm not even mad anymore. So that's kind of what I had to say about the weathering effects on the climbing. But I also want to make a quick mention of the so-called desert varnish, or patina that coats the rock. The desert varnish is this hard, dark coating spread on the rocks across a lot of the climbs and boulders in Joshua Tree. Basically, this varnish is a coating of manganese and iron bound together with clay particles, creating a very hard surficial layer that keeps the rock from crumbling away in some places. I guess there's a fair bit of dissension about how it actually forms, but apparently it is most likely has to do with a bacteria that grows on the rock. The leading theory is that the bacteria on the rock traps dust that settles on the rock to create the coating. However, all of this seems to be disputed, but if you're looking to tell your friends about it, I'm going to say, go ahead and say, tell them about the bacteria because A, it sounds cool. And B, my sources seem to suggest that the bacteria on the rock are most likely to produce this. Either way, the varnish is actually pretty important to the rock climbing in Joshua Tree, as a lot of the most intact climbs feature a layer of varnish. In my photo album, I feature a picture of the cat house area, which has a ton of awesome, easy crack climbs, all coated in the desert varnish. But enough from me. I want to now get into more of my conversations with the aforementioned Roddy McCauley and Luke Mihal about their experience in Joshua Tree, and I'll try to tie in some of the geology stuff I've been talking about to what they say. Here's Roddy, the Joshua Tree climbing guide, on his thoughts on climbing in Joshua Tree. Well, let's see. I've been coming through Joshua Tree since the early 2000s as a climber and, and I was working as an outdoor educator and living out of a car so I'd pass through here every fall spend a few weeks or a month and then spend a bunch of time here early spring I actually bought my home here 11 years ago this month so I've spent winters here since then and I still spend my summers on the road mostly in the Sierra and what I love about the climbing here is one that it's such a magical convoluted landscape and you have to go exploring to even find the climbs you go wandering around the canyons and rock formations and 
trying to figure out where the climbs are and having adventures just just trying to get to where you're going and then the climbing itself tends to be tricky technical sometimes a little sandbagged uh, a 60 foot rock climb could be more of an adventure than you expect it could demand friction slab skills crack technique um, tricky gear placement it's uh, Joshua Tree makes you a better climber I feel like so this may sound a bit counterintuitive to some of the things I've said about how easy it is to get to the climbs in Joshua Tree but the reality is is that there's a ton of areas and a lot of climbs for instance, from the Hidden Valley Campground, there are probably upwards of 30 awesome classic climbs within a two-minute walk. On the other hand, there are areas like the Rattlesnake Canyon, where it's a real scramble through a water-cut canyon to even get to the start of a climb. Also, piggybacking off of that, the formations can look pretty similar to one another, making it hard to sometimes find the specific climb you're looking for. Add on to that a huge number of documented climbs that are all sort of juxtaposed, it can be difficult to locate a specific climb. And then, you gotta know the ins and outs of what gear and knowledge you need, as well as physical ability, to actually do the climb. I'll let Roddy explain that a little bit more. So, if you were coming to Joshua Tree for the first time and, you know, didn't know anything about the area, didn't have a guide, uh, what kind of climbing could you expect when you come here? And uh, what kind of technical knowledge should you have in the bag ready to go to be able to climb? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that because people definitely come here and wander around kind of like getting hosed and not getting on enough climbs um, because they come looking for bouldering or sport climbing and maybe don't buy a guidebook. I would say the first Thing I recommend is buy a guidebook to the area. I know you can do a lot with Mountain Project on your phone these days, but Joshua Tree is pretty spread out. The climbing areas are tucked here and there among rock formations and in canyons. And the guidebook has, you know, a nice map and then color photos. And it's way easier than trying to use Mountain Project. And the guidebooks to Joshua Tree were all written by local climbers and authors. And, you know, buy one at the local gear shop, Nomad Ventures, on your way into the park, um, which is, by the way, a world-class gear shop in a town that doesn't even have a supermarket. So we're lucky to have Nomad um, get a guidebook. They'll give you a printout at Nomad Ventures of a list of top rope sites that you can walk to the top of and hang a top rope if that's all you're equipped to do. But really, to do the majority of Joshua Tree climbs, you need the full rack of trad gear and, and a lot of knowledge of how to use it, because the climbs are not generally tall, but they're generally tricky. Um, if a climb is bolted, that doesn't mean it's a sport climb. It was probably bolted on lead back in the 60s and the bolts are gonna be 20 feet apart and they're gonna be at comfortable stances where you could stop and drill. They're not gonna be at the cruxes. So it's not a place you can come with some quick draws and expect a nice, safe uh, sport climbing experience. It is a place you can come with a crash pad and go bouldering for sure, but I would recommend buying the, the bouldering guidebook by Robert Miramontes for just for the maps and photos, if nothing else. But yeah, a lot of tricky, traditional climbing here it's a great place to come and hone your trad skills and uh and um can i plug myself here yeah if yeah, you wanted no. to hire a guide to teach you trad skills or up your game in terms of anchor building multi-pitch transitions i teach a lot of skills here that that people are learning to get ready for bigger stuff in yosemite or the sierra we do have some nice multi-pitch terrain over on lost horse wall and saddle rocks and a few other places 
um, yeah, lots of great crack climbing and slab climbing and some scary run out bolted faces that were put up uh, back in the day. Not a lot of stuff you can just walk up to um, and drop a top rope on easily. Talking with Roddy a little bit more throughout my time climbing with him, he explained how the climbers of Joshua Tree discourage a lot of bolting on the rock for the most part making traditional use of temporary cams, nuts, and other gear placement in the crevices a necessity. However, with so many wide cracks and so much good friction, the trad climbing can be relatively low consequence, making it a great place to practice placing gear. And, of course, if you are like me and my family, hiring a guide is not a bad call. And if you want to hire a guide, I cannot recommend Roddy more and I will link his website in the episode description. Now, I want to finish up here with Luke speaking to the climbing culture that has amassed in Joshua Tree over the years. As I said earlier, I recorded about an hour-long conversation with Luke Mihal about the climbing in Joshua Tree, among other things, that I think was so fun and interesting that I'm going to release that conversation as its own standalone episode. However, I do want to pull one more snippet of that conversation where he talks about one of the experiences he had when he lived in Joshua Tree for about three months in the winter of 2006. Here he is. So getting back to uh, Joshua Tree, uh, I mean, there, there were some crazy, like really funny things that you described in your podcast, like... Uh, I mean, one that I I found particularly interesting was the midnight naked disco party yeah. on top of a rock. Uh, can you describe that real quick? Oh God, you... just way way too many penises. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, on paper it sounds great if there is a mix of uh, you know, male to female or whatever, but there wasn't, and I, I that kind of defined that whole era of just. 10 you know 20 to 1 guys to to ladies camping out um yeah. but it, it was fun it was something to write about um but honestly the funny for me they would yeah they these this group they would have these naked parties but it was just always a bunch of naked dudes which just is not necessarily my thing i mean no no disrespect right. to anyone if that is your thing but i don't want to go to a party and just see a bunch of naked dudes um, yeah, but really the funniest stuff with that one was kind of the antics to get up to the rock because yeah, like you said, a lot of them have five, two solos, but I linked up with this guy and, uh, he's like, are you trying to get up there? And I'm like, yeah. And, and like he had beer and I didn't. So I was like, all right, he's got beer. I'll team up with him. And we yeah. go up, there's a five, two hand crack up the backside of the blob and, uh, you know, the greatest hand jams you could imagine, low angle, super easy for a climber. But right. for an, he started to climb the crack and I didn't realize he told me. So he's got a, a backpack full of bottled beer and yeah. he he gets his hand jams and he starts to explain to me that he's never actually climbed before. <laughs> Oh, man. So I'm like, all right, I got I to gotta, like coax him out of this, you know, like I, I don't want this guy's death to be on my hands, you know, and so, right. so I coaxed him out of it. And then I, I went up the five two hand crack and, you know, yeah, just a bunch of naked dudes on, on top of this rock. 
it almost seems a little counterintuitive, right? Like, rock climbing is this super technically demanding sport that requires a lot of physical ability and concentration. So it doesn't seem like it would combine well with drinking or drugs or whatever. I think the takeaway, though, is that people are willing to live out and dedicate their lives to climbing and living in Joshua Tree. In that sense, it lends to a large group of people dedicated to keeping it intact and accessible because of how great it is to climb there. I mean, it's a little sad since the landscape itself should be motivation enough to protect and maintain Joshua Tree, but having an army of people so dedicated to the activity that they're willing to live out their lives out there doesn't hurt. Luke is an absolute treasure trove of stories and knowledge, and if I took the time to include it all in this episode, it would be a lot longer than it already is. So I'm just going to release another episode of my conversation with Luke soon. In conclusion, I cannot say enough good things about Joshua Tree. I mean, the rocks and the climbing are one thing, but what really makes the experience special out there is how beautiful it all is. From the creosote desert landscape to the piles of rocks to the weirdest looking trees of all time, kind of makes you want to get naked and have a disco dance party on top of the rocks. So enjoy it and respect it, and I will see you all on the next one. Okay, so you've stuck around, because through the rest of the podcast, you could not stop thinking about that one burning question. Why is it that feldspar breaks down into kaolinite so easily? So it has to do with the temperature at which the molten magma becomes a solid mineral, which is different for different minerals. For instance, a feldspar quenches at a higher temperature than quartz, which gives them different properties. From what I understand, again, I'm not a chemist or a material scientist, at a high temperature, the atoms in the molten magma are all very energized and therefore hard to organize into a complex pattern to form a mineral. Feldspars, which are all made up of a combination of aluminum, silicon, and oxygen, all pick up a positively charged ion that serves as a sort of unconformity in the structure of the feldspar mineral. This positively charged ion unconformity can be a sodium, potassium, or calcium, it can easily be traded out for a hydrogen ion, which is in the acidic rainwater. This hydrogen ion breaks down the lattice structure of the feldspar and creates a more stable kaolinite clay mineral. In contrast, a quartz mineral is very stable because it doesn't have any of these unconformities since it cools more slowly. Quartz is made up of just silicon and oxygen, and at its low quenching temperature is able to arrange itself into a very stable structure that is not as easily broken apart by ions in a solution. This is why quartz is very prominent in sand, because it is the most stable mineral that is actually able to survive different weathering processes. 
If you or a loved one is a chemist or a material scientist, be sure to dial 1-800-JAZZHAMMER today for a free consultation on crystal lattices, because I'm basically an expert. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but please reach out if you are interested in this topic and want to discuss further. Or if my explanations didn't sit quite right with you. Also, as always, reach out to just say hello. I should also mention that I've been posting updates and addendums to my blog, so head over there to continue the discussion or just shoot me an email. And of course, as always, all my episode links, sources, photos are on the blog now, so go check that out. As always, thanks for listening. Jazzhammer, out.